So Matthew 9, starting on verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman, who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, he saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes. He said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Harold. If you can keep your Bibles open to chapter 9 of Matthew, that would be great. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Yep, that's good. Uh, Chapter 9, 18 and on. We'll go through it. Uh, For the past three months, politics really have dominated our conversations and thoughts. As millions marched, many people were were doused by tear gas, arrested and injured. Uh, People do this because people think that politics matter. What the government does matters to us. It affects us. Unfortunately, though, most people, including many Christians, don't think what we do here in the church matters. It's weird because there's plenty of political talk in the Bible. Right? If you look at the Old Testament, it's all about the kingdom of God. And it promises Israel. I mean, it promises Messiah, 
a word that can't be taken away with, uh, they can't, you can't take away its political connotations. We talk of Jesus as our king. We come to church and say this is a new people, new nation. We say we are God's people. But we see all of this somehow through, quote-unquote, spiritual lens, removed from what we do day to day. That's not true, though, because the Bible calls us a new nation and God's people, and that's what we are. We are his kingdom, planted here in Sha Tin, all around Hong Kong, and all around the world to bear witness to the fact that we worship a new king, a king that came 2,000 years ago as our king, as our Messiah, as our Savior. So in this series, we've been asking, who is Jesus? Well, Matthew makes it clear. He showed that Jesus taught with authority. He healed the sick. He drove out demons. He calmed the sea. He forgave sins. He is the promised Messiah, the one who brings the kingdom of God to uh, this earth. But as we go, as we learn uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, let's pray that God will teach us what that means for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came 2,000 years ago. We thank you that we, each one of us, has been called to be a member of his kingdom, his new nation. And Lord, we, we pray you would help us to know what that means, to follow Jesus in the midst of all that is going on in Hong Kong. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 20 years ago, I became a U.S. citizen, and in order to become a citizen, I had to uh, take an exam that goes through the basics of U.S. culture and constitution. Um, I had to swear in as a new citizen, and partly, I think that's the reason why Matthew tells the next three stories of miracles, because we've had many, many miracles before, but in verses 18, chapter 9, verses 18 to 31, he tells these three stories of miracles of healing to highlight how we become citizens of that kingdom. We become citizens. We're admitted to that kingdom as we come to Jesus in desperate faith. Take a look at the extraordinary faith of the synagogue ruler. He kneels before Jesus to ask him to come to his house so he can lay his hands on his dead daughter. It's one thing, right? It's one thing to run to Jesus when somebody is sick. It's quite another thing to run to Jesus still when she has fallen dead. You do not go to a doctor when somebody is dead. You don't say, please revive this person. That's when you normally give up. And while Jesus is on the way, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years comes behind Jesus with the hope of just touching him because she believed that if she just touched uh, Jesus, then she would be healed. And when she touches him, Jesus turns around. Verse 27, look at what, what he says. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. It's not the touching. It's not that superstitious belief that if you just sort of touch him. It's not the touching. It's the faith. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Then we encounter two blind men who come calling out in verse 27. Have mercy on us, son of David. And look at what Jesus says. Do you believe 
I am able to do this. And when they say yes, Jesus touches their eyes, verse 29, and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. He highlights the faith that these people have come. According to your faith, it has been done. We aren't surprised that people believe in Jesus But actually, this happened in the context of unbelief. It happened when actually these things are incredible. These are happening for the first time. Synagogue rulers' friends who were mourning, playing the pipes because this daughter fell dead. When Jesus says, no, this person is sleeping, look at their reactions, right? Verse 24, they laugh. They laugh at what Jesus says. Even worse are the Pharisees in verse 34. When, uh, who, who say Jesus drives out evil spirits by the prince of demons. That's not just unbelief, it's active opposition. But in that context of unbelief, these people incredibly believe. They come to Jesus, which isn't to say their faith is perfect. Actually, they were at best incomplete and maybe even defective. After all, the synagogue ruler comes as a last resort. When everything else has been done, he comes over. The faith of a hemorrhaging woman was superstitious. She didn't know exactly who, she, who Jesus was. The blind men crying out, Son of David. Well, that shows that actually they don't quite understand exactly who Jesus is either. He's much more than that. But they all come in desperation. And you might wonder, does that even count? When somebody comes to Jesus as a last act of desperation, well, of course, the amazing thing is it counts. Actually, desperate faith is the only kind of faith that gets you admitted into his kingdom. Remember Jesus' words from last week? If you scroll up to chapter 9, verse 12, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick We've, got, we've seen a lot of desperate people in these texts. The demon-possessed, the disciples in that storm, the paralyzed, the blind, and now uh, people who are mourning a death of their daughter. They came to Jesus because there was no other person who could do something about that, the, the trouble that they were facing. In their desperation, they came and they received their salvation. Once again, lesson from last week was actually if you think that you are healthy, if you think you don't need Jesus, if you are not desperate, actually, you won't come to Jesus. Jesus cannot save you. But even as Jesus healed, he highlights that the biggest problem actually isn't sickness itself. Even as he drives off demons, he highlights the fact that actually demons is not the biggest problem that they're facing. Death itself is not the biggest problem. Remember, in this text, in verse 24, he says, well, there's, he's, he's, she's sleeping, and he will raise us up with just one more. Death itself isn't the biggest problem. Well, what is the biggest problem? Our biggest problem is sin. It's sin that has entered in this world. It's sin that has caused all these other problems. It's sin that will bring us to our last judgment and the greatest death. And look at what Jesus says to the hemorrhaging women in verse 22. Your faith has healed you. 
Jesus could have used other words, but actually the word to heal there is also to save. It's sozo, to save. Your faith has saved you because he has come to save us not just from physical illness, from the dangers of this world or even death itself. He's come to save us from our ultimate death, banishment from his presence. He came to take our place, our place, so that we could take his place in the kingdom that is coming. We often debate and we pray, we plead with people to come to Jesus, to put their trust in Jesus. We almost beg them, which can falsely give people the impression that actually it's Jesus who's desperate for them. Actually, if we recognize where we are, if we recognize the plight that we, we are in, if we recognize the judgment that we all face, actually people would come running to Jesus in their desperation because Jesus is the only one who can do anything about it. Jesus is the Savior who has come to save us. As we sang, there is no other name that can save And if we have been healed from our greatest plight and greatest danger, Christianity can't be just one of many things that we do. In Hong Kong, I know somebody who has been healed from terminal cancer. People prayed over him, and, and there's no other way, and he was healed. You know, if you meet this person, you can't go 10 minutes talking to that person without you hearing about that miracle about how Jesus saved him. Jesus, for him, is not just a a, a hobby that he does. It's not one of many things. He lives to tell the good news of Jesus. And friends, we have been healed from a greater plight that faces all of us, death and judgment. God has saved us. We cannot have this be one of many things that we all do. We come in desperate faith because Jesus is the only one who could heal So we come in desperate faith, but we go out with also compassion, Christ's compassion. These stories in Matthew, compiled in in, uh, chapters 8 to 9, lead us to the climax in chapter 10. As you can see in chapter 10 there, if you glance over, where Jesus will send out his disciples into the world in mission. And Verses 35 to 38 is a transition. It's a transition verses about uh, the motivation, the means of that mission. Motivation and means of that mission. And the motivation is compassion. Uh, Matthew gives us a summary statement in verse 35 of what Jesus has been doing. And Matthew then records how Jesus felt about the people that he healed. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Commentators tell me that this word uh, moved. He was moved with compassion. That actually uh, is, is a very strong word. It's sort of uh, the gut, uh, uh, movement in the gut, that sort of compassion. Power, authority without compassion is really dangerous. If you have power but no compassion, it leads to brutality. But you can have lots and lots of compassion, but no power to fix anything, no power to do anything about it. But Jesus, he has both. He has demonstrated that he has both. He has authority and compassion. 
He met with people who were oppressed and exhausted by sickness, demons, storms, and death. They were helpless at the face of it, uh, face of it all. And Jesus is the good shepherd with authority who's come to do something about it. That shepherd language, and we can't understand that language without understanding the Old Testament. It comes from places like Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel was a prophet who lived in the 6th century. B.C., when the nation, Judah, was in shambles, God rejects the last kings of Judah because they failed to be good shepherds. This is what he says. Ezekiel 34, 4-5, he condemns the shepherds of Israel. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. You have failed as shepherds. And so God makes an extraordinary promise in, that same, in the same chapter in verse 11. He says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. He says he will come. He will be the good shepherd. He himself will go out and look for the scattered sheep. He will himself will gather them. He will himself will, will tend to them. And after about 600 years later, Jesus, our shepherd, came. In his compassion, he came. He went through the towns and villages teaching and healing. In his compassion, he did something that no other shepherd could do. He willingly goes to the death on the cross that we might receive not just momentary healing, momentary reprieve from all these things, but we might receive a permanent kingdom of God that is coming in the future without any of these things. So Jesus came with compassion. He had compassion for the people. He went to the cross because of that compassion. What does it mean for us, though? Right? Let's make it clear. We're not the shepherds. We're not the shepherds. We're not somebody, uh, people who can bring this, uh, this salvation to the people around us. We are still the sheep. But the people here sitting around, we are sheep whom the shepherd has found. We are people who were lost but are now found. In our compassion, we can point others around us to the shepherd who has come. And man, our city needs a good shepherd, doesn't it? Hong Kong is embroiled in this political storm at the moment. Protesters are fighting for their freedom. They're calling it the revolution of our lifetime. New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote a quite a sympathetic article called The One United Struggle for Freedom. But in his latest book, uh, which I just finished, The Second Mountain, he also writes this. Political freedom is great, but personal, social, and emotional freedom, when it becomes an ultimate end, it absolutely sucks. It leads to a random, busy life with no discernible direction, no firm foundation, in which, as Marx put it all, put it, all that solid melts to air. It turns out that freedom isn't an ocean you want to spend your life in. Freedom is a river you want to get across so that you can plant yourself on the other side and fully commit to something. What he's saying is this. Freedom, if it's the ultimate idol, it's the, the, if it's the ultimate thing that people are looking for, 
Well, that's just an idol. Idol that cannot give you what it promises. Brooks, in that book, talks a lot about U.S. and what's happening in the U.S., how this generation has grown up with unprecedented freedom, ability and freedom. Uh, They can do things. They have all sorts of choices, but they don't know what to do with their freedom. They don't know what to live for. They don't know purpose and meaning for their lives. They They have no direction. Hong Kong, well, we haven't had universal suffrage, but we've had a degree of freedom here, haven't, haven't we? But what has it gotten us? Well, there's a lot of good things, but think about the negative things. Yeah, free. Hong Kong, it, it's, a, it's a free and prosperous city full of people who live without such purpose, such meaning. Free, of peop- uh, free people who are guided, guided by false idols of wealth and power and security and comfort. A generation of people who are addicted to padding their CVs, increasing their bank accounts, looking constantly to distract themselves uh, by entertainment. A city with high suicide rates, widening wealth gap. Many in Hong Kong are fighting for freedom, and it's a worthwhile fight, having many for many reasons, but freedom, it cannot be the ultimate idol. It cannot be the ultimate end. Christians, if we are compassionate, we would point those who are marching on the streets looking for freedom also to Jesus, our good shepherd. We would go across and, and say, you plant, you plant your life with Jesus, to Jesus. Commit your life to him. And if you're truly compassionate, we would also point all those who are watching these protests. You know, turmoil is often reveal what's in our hearts. And a lot of what's in our hearts is idol of security, idol of wealth, idol of comfort. Well, we need to tell those people, all of us, We need to tell uh, others that that there is a good shepherd who gives you all these things that you are looking for. Everyone needs Jesus, our good shepherd. That's what having Christ's compassion, I think, must mean for the Christian. First and foremost, because we were lost and we have been found. And we have been found by this good shepherd who's given everything up for us so that we could have life. We're beggars who have found bread. And we need to tell other people where to find this bread. Come in desperate faith. Go out with compassion. Point people to the good shepherd that we have. Well, one pastor says, actually, that when we talk about evangelism and mission, though, people do either of the two things, two reactions. They either hide or they start doing. Many people hide. Evangelism, pointing people to Jesus, starting these conversations, well, it's the last thing that we want to do with our families, friends, and colleagues. We don't want to make the conversations awkward by bringing Jesus into the conversation. Others, though, start doing right away. They go and they start sharing and they start doing things, doing the mission work. I think they're the minority, but they're there. They're there. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, Harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. My parents, after 20, 
eight years or whatever uh, in the U.S. moved back uh, to Korea. And they just moved back last Friday into this new house. It's a great house that overlooks rice fields everywhere around them. It's beautiful. And I was having this conversation with uh, my parents, and they were telling me about how, how much they enjoy the house. Uh, they, the rice right now in September, mid-autumn is coming up, right? Uh, rice is stooping low with this heaviness of their golden seeds, right? And when the wind blows, you see the waves, the beautiful waves of the rice field. Beautiful golden waves ready for picking. And when Jesus saw the crowd, that's what he saw. <laughs> A harvest ready for the picking, And you'd expect Jesus to then then say, you go, you go and start harvesting. But that's not what he says. Take a look what Jesus commands his disciples to do in verse 38. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The first thing that he tells us to do is to pray, to pray uh, for the, to the Lord of the harvest. You see, it's not us who's harvesting. It's Jesus' harvest. It's he, he is the Lord of the harvest. Just as healing people, driving out demons, isn't something that we can do ourselves, bringing life to the people who are spiritually dead. But opening the eyes of the blind is not something that we can do ourselves either. It's not our project. It's Jesus' project. It's our Lord's project. It's his harvest. And as such, he says, you come to me. You go to the Lord of the harvest. We are to pray first. A pastor friend of mine calls this prayer the other Lord's prayer because the only other time, right, where Jesus commands you to pray for something, pray like this. We're going to pray the Lord's prayer today as part of our communion. Why not pray this prayer as well? Lord, send out workers into the harvest field to our friends, to our families, to our colleagues, to the streets of Hong Kong. Prayer is the start of the harvest, isn't it? When a person becomes a Christian, they quickly realize, they're surprised by how many people have been praying for them, many of them for years. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. When you became a Christian, you realize how many people were praying for you. Who prayed for you to come to faith in Christ? And when we pray in this way, though you'll often find yourselves to be the answers to your own prayers. Many of the missionaries here, you know, send, send someone to China. It changes slowly to send me. Many of you who have been praying, send, send someone to my family, to my colleagues. Well, that'll change. It often becomes, equip me, send me to my families, to my colleagues and friends. We've been praying for Hong Kong these uh, weeks. Shall we pray? It all starts with prayer, doesn't it? Shall we pray that God would send his workers into the harvest field? And when God calls, shall we answer that call? and go to the water coolers in our offices, to the lunches and dinners with our families and friends, to the streets to discuss not just what's happening, not just the rulers of this city, but the king whom we've met, the king who's given us new life, 
who's, who's a king who's given us purpose and direction and the kingdom that is coming, the king who had such compassion, who laid down his life for us. Come in desperate faith. Go out with compassion. But first, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love Hong Kong more than we love it ourselves. We thank you that you love each one of us more than we can love ourselves. We thank you that you've sent your son Jesus to die for us, to bring us the salvation that we could not ever achieve ourselves. Lord, help us to realize the goodness and the greatness of your salvation, how desperate we have been, and, and the goodness of the, the, the good news that we have received. And I'll help us to be compassionate people who hold out the hope that we have in you to everyone around us. And Lord, we come to you in prayer that you would send out workers into the harvest field to many who are ready to receive the salvation. Send us also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.